to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts for today, Karen and Kathy. We hope everyone is having a fantastic holiday. Today, we are discussing episode 41 of the story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gongrie. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. A friendly reminder to go vote, vote, vote on our website for the drama you want us to discuss next for this podcast series and also which drama was your favorite for 2022. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter or else email us at Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. I absolutely love reading all of your feedback, so please continue to send them to us. This podcast episode consists of a drama episode recap, and then we will discuss tons of culture and history. Uh, actually, not super portrayed in this episode, but what we found very interesting. This podcast episode, episode 41, is actually going to be quite history heavy as we are in a transition period for the players in the drama. Empress Fu Cha has tragically passed away, and Ying Luo has been banished to Yuan Ming Yuan, the Summer Palace, never to return to the Forbidden Palace. Ying Luo at this point is joined by her adoptive brother, the eunuch Yuan Chunwang, who makes Ying Luo promise that she must stay with him in Yuan Ming Yuan forever. It was kind of creepy when he made her do that, but you know, they are currently living happily enough together here in the old Summer Palace. Well, that's all well and good for our main character, but we do have an important scene for military matters with the emperor. He is holding a private audience with a number of officials, and the emperor is furious. Qin is the subject of today's meeting. He is an imperial general tasked with quelling a rebellion by the Jinchuan chieftains in modern-day Sichuan province. We'll get into this later on because this little interlude was historically accurate. Qin had no military experience and did not perform well on this campaign, leading to the emperor's ire. I do find this hilarious because pretty much all of the lines that the emperor says to explain the situation here are pretty much the summarizing lines from Baidu when anybody goes and Googles to read up on the matter. I mean, I wonder if the screenwriters also did this cursory research to write this scene. Anyways, the emperor chastises the entire room of officials before asking which one of them is willing to lead the Qing army to protect the Qing borders. It's here that Fu Hong volunteers for the job. Back at home, though, Er Qing, his wife, is making a huge ruckus because she does not want Fu Hong to go off to war. She states it's because she is worried about his safety, but he immediately pushes back and states she's just more worried about her loss of status if she becomes a widow. A quick reminder here is that at this point in time, Er Qing is pregnant with the emperor's child. It's appreciated that Fu Hong point-blank tells Er Qing he knows full well how this child came to be. Fu Hong is aware of the emperor's character, who would not do such a thing, so it's pretty easy to deduce who plotted this little scheme for the child to come to be. This shuts Er Qing up, who can only cry from then on. 
I do also like the fact that Erting has no rebuttal to any of uh, Fu Hung's statements at this point. Before leaving for war, though, Fu Hung makes a mad dash to Yuan Mingyuan and sneaks a glance at Wei Yingluo, to which I'm like, why? Stop it, Fu Hung. <laughs> this is very, very unhealthy of you, and you need to just move on. Good thing for, you know, going off to war to go prove yourself and give yourself a little distraction. I did like the shots of Fu Hung riding his horse. We finally get some outdoor scenes, so that was a good little uh, kind of eye candy for me. Well, more in like right now, the number one, uh, I guess, criticism for a lot of actors is that they don't know how to ride horses. And so the fact that Xu Kai was actually riding a horse, I was like, oh, I'm impressed. I love that both of us noticed this, but it was actually, I, I noticed that as well. After he leaves, we get a montage of time passing relatively peacefully. We are now in Tianlong's 15th year of reign, or 1750. Two years have passed since the death of the Empress Fu Cha. One day, the Empress Dowager meets with the Emperor to remind him that since it's been some time since Fu Cha Huang Hou's death, it is time to consider promoting Xian Guifei to the position. Per the Empress Dowager, Xian Huang Guifei has been managing the harem admirably since Empress Fu Cha's death and should be given the honor of being the next Empress. And so, the Emperor agrees. Our Xianfei has stepped up and officially become empress. In her full court regalia, she stands in front of a mirror and speaks to her deceased mother that she is finally the empress. No one can look down upon her anymore. Everything she's done is to live up to her mother's dying words. At last, she has finally achieved ultimate power and prestige. It's honestly a pity she's not the main character of this drama. For those of you hoping to see what her coronation ceremony may have looked like, head over to watch Rui's Love in the Palace, or Rui Zhuan. The end of episode 47 has a fantastic representation. Now that's a scene where you could tell big money was spent to create a more realistic ceremony. We turn back to Yin Luo in Yuan Ming Yuan. The servants there have been told that this year, the Empress Dowager's birthday celebrations will be conducted at Yuan Mingyuan, and for each of them to pay the utmost attention to their task. Soon after, the royal entourage arrives. Apart from the Emperor and Empress Dowager, we have the newly coronated Empress, Chun Guifei, Shu Pin, Qin Guiren, and Yu Fei. Yu Fei is someone we haven't seen in quite some time. She's the mother of the fifth prince that Ying Luo helped at the beginning of the drama. Ying Luo, though, does not care about any of these folks. She only cares about seeing her old friend Ming Yu, who has, these last two years, been working under Chun Guifei. But something is off when Ying Luo manages to find Ming Yu alone. Ming Yu is extremely cold towards Ying Luo and even dismisses her. At that moment, Chun Guifei and Yu Fei arrive. Ying Luo has no other option but to back off when she is pointedly told by both of these consorts that Ming Yu didn't want to talk to Ying Luo. But at night, Ying Luo becomes increasingly worried something is amiss. Ming Yu would not behave this way in front of Ying Luo unless something was wrong. So soon after, Ying Luo sneaks out and grabs Ming Yu while she's on duty. Alone, 
Yinlo questions Mingyu as to why she's so distant, only to find that Mingyu has been injured. Mingyu continues to deny that anything is off, but she does give Yinlo the warning to watch out for Chun Guifei. She is no longer the Chunfei that they once knew. At this moment, though, Chun Guifei's headmate Yu Hu arrives, disbanding this little meetup. Ying Luo argues with Yu Hu on Mingyu's treatment and says she will investigate the truth as to why Mingyu is now so scared of Ying Luo. As Ying Luo storms off, though, Yu Hu threatens under her own breath that Ying Luo has to have a life in order to do any kind of investigation. Just as these words fall, a couple of eunuchs are seen sneaking into Ying Luo's room, hoping to silence her forever with a really large uh, sword or a knife. But they only find a couple of pillows in Ying Luo's bed. When they try to escape, however, they are caught by Ying Luo, Yuan Chunwang, and another head eunuch. This confirms to Ying Luo that the situation at hand isn't as simple as Mingyu makes it out to be, especially if someone wants to get Ying Luo killed. The next day, the emperor heads to pay his respects to the empress at Changchun Xiangguan, where Ying Luo has been working these past two years. He notices the flowers and the food placed on the altar. The cake in the center in particular looks off from what he remembered. Ying Luo arrives and tells him a story that the empress spoke to her in her dream the night before claiming she wanted this cake. But it was Ming Yu who used to make these dishes so Ying Luo could only try her hand. Unfortunately, it doesn't look as good as it used to. Or honestly, taste as good as it used to. This little discussion on cake, though, was actually planned by Ying Luo in order to save Ming Yu. And right in the nick of time. At that moment, Ming Yu was being questioned by Chun Guifei. Chun Guifei thinks Ming Yu sneaked a message to Ying Luo to be careful, which is why she's still alive and the two lives of the eunuchs were taken instead. Clearly, Chun Guifei was the one to send those two eunuchs the night before to kill Ying Luo. But before Mingyu could be taken away for some special kind of punishment, Li Yu arrives from the emperor and requests Mingyu make the special cake for the late empress. Given that this was a request by the emperor, Chun Guifei has no option but to let Mingyu leave. This was really in the nick of time. I don't know about you guys, but watching this episode, I was weirdly freaked out by Chun Guifei. She's like, Deliciously evil, but in like a scary sort of way. In the kitchens, Ying Luo and Ming Yu finally meet. Ying Luo also purposefully injures herself in order to meet her old imperial doctor friend, Ye Tianshi, who is here to tend to the Empress Dowager. He looks after Ming Yu and is shocked to find that in her body is a number of silver needles. Through much effort, the doctor was able to retrieve eight needles out of Mingyu's body that would ultimately kill her if kept in her body for much longer. There were probably a few left still in her body that he was unable to retrieve, unfortunately. This is a horrifying form of punishment, and we will learn in episode 42 exactly what happened to Mingyu to cause her to be the subject of this type of slow torture. I did try to do some research as to what type of punishment there is or this is. I couldn't find anything medically you know, relevant or historically relevant. Um, I will say, though, that in all of the articles I've read, everyone mentioned the fact that in Pearl Princess Quan Zhu Ke Ke, 
um, using uh, silver needles to stab at people was um, a form of punishment in the imperial harem. And this was done to uh, not leave any traces of blood. So it's not probably unheard of to use silver needles in this way. Um, I just couldn't find anything like that historically accurate or uh, relevant here. See, this is why Chun Guifei is just so evil. This is like a punishment I wouldn't even have thought about. Exactly. But with that, let's move on to some history because there is a lot to talk about. We will learn more about uh, Ming Yi's punishment in episode 42. So there is a lot of history thrown at us in the early minutes of the episode. I thought these events flowed surprisingly well with the drama because, well, they are all contemporaneous to the events that happened in real life. So let's first talk about Nexin. Nexin is a guy being admonished off screen by the emperor, or he is the topic of discussion and the ire of the emperor for his failed campaign. Nexin came from the powerful Niuhulu clan. This is the same clan that the current Empress Dowager is from, or if you remember towards the end of Zhen Huan Zhuan, or Empresses in the Palace, the clan that is gifted to Zhen Huan. Nexin's direct lineage is just as aristocratic. For context, his father, his grandfather, and great-grandfather were all bequeathed the title of Duke of the First Rank, either in life or in death. He himself was a very favored minister official throughout the reigns of primarily Yongzheng and the early years of Qianlong. What's interesting though is that we don't have any firm evidence of his date or year of birth. So all we know is that by the end of Yongzheng's reign, he was already a very powerful minister, but also quite young. In 1727, which is again still the early years of or in the reign of Emperor Yongzheng, Nexin was already promoted to the title of Duke of the Second Rank. In 1733, he was promoted to the recently established Junjichu, and I'll translate this to the Grand Council of the Office of Military and Political Affairs. In 1745, this is now during the reign of Qianlong, he was further promoted to lead the Grand Council. He became probably the most high-ranking court official at that point. Unfortunately, all of that came crashing down with the Jin Chuan campaigns. Let's pivot to the Jin Chuan campaigns then. There were two campaigns in the Jin Chuan region during Qianlong's reign. And what I find is really funny is Jin Chuan uh, is also a place in the drama Qingqing Chang or New Life Begins. So I'm having kind of like, whoa, flashbacks. But in that drama, the real life counterpart is more in like the Canton region, whereas here we're in the Tibetan Plains or Sichuan province. The people who live there are the Jiazhong Zhangzhu, uh, or of the Jiarong Tibetan ethnicity. During Qianlong's reign, the area was ruled by chieftains or Tu Si. The greater Jinchuan was ruled by the Tu Si called Sha Luopen. He was trying to rebel against the Qing dynasty rule and made a move to unite the different tribes in the region. In 1747, Sha Luopen attacked the chiefdom of Chakla or Mingzheng Tu Si, surprising the Qing officials in the area. They called for reinforcements from Beijing. In 1747, Qianlong sent Zhang Guangsi, who was the then Governor General of Chuanshan, in hopes of a quick victory. 
He arrived in the region in the fourth month of 1747, but by the eighth month, Zhang Guangzi finally realized the difficulty in the campaign and requested for more aid from the government. Qianlong then sent Nilatin to the front lines, believing that since he had been in the Grand Council and was familiar with the emperor's plans, he was the best man for the job. Nilatin arrived in the early months of 1748. Unfortunately, Nilatin had no battlefield experience, despite coming from a high-ranking Manchu family that was also known for its military prowess. At this point, Nilatin was an arrogant and headstrong man who ignored valuable suggestions from his military council. Zhang Guangzi and Nilatin clashed with each other often on the front line. The combination of lack of experience from Nilatin and lack of clear leadership from both Zhang Guangzi and Nilatin resulted in several embarrassing defeats for the Qing troops. In reports back to the capital, Nilatin pushed all of the blame onto Zhang Guangzi or other military officials, but Qianlong received contrasting reports from the other officials stating that Nilatin never once left his tent to join his men on the battlefield. These reports also informed the emperor on the rifts between Zhang Guangzi and Nilatin. A fellow minister, Yue Zhongqi, also reported that there was a spy that infiltrated the ranks of Zhang Guangzi's military council, leading to sensitive battle plans being leaked to the rebels. The emperor at this point was completely done and disappointed by these two men and ordered them back to Beijing in the ninth month of 1748. This spelled the end for the two men. Zhang Guangzi was arrested for obstruction of military plans, and under questioning by the emperor himself, Zhang Guangzi continued to push all wrongdoings onto others. Even after torture, he continued to voice his quote-unquote innocence. Seeing that Zhang Guangzi felt no remorse, the emperor passed his sentence. Zhang Guangzi was sentenced to death in the 12th month of that year. Back to Nilatin, he was once Qianlong's most favorite official. This campaign destroyed all of that goodwill and trust. Honestly, though, I think that the emperor could have at least had the thought to send someone to the front lines first because he knew Nilatin had no actual military experience. So I feel like part of the blame should go to Qianlong. Anyways, once Nilatin returned back to the capital, he faced the wrath of the emperor. Qianlong gave him his grandfather's knife to commit suicide. Nilatin died in 1749. Let's remind listeners that this was happening all in the background uh, of the death of the seventh prince and the empress's death. As we saw in episode 39 and 40, where Qianlong wanted to do all of these things, but was pulled away due to these military uh, campaigns happening in the background. In history, as with in the drama, the emperor was dealing with a lot. So you do have to feel kind of bad. He loses his son and his wife and is dealing with a rebellion in Sichuan. That does not sound like fun. After the death of Zhang Guangzi and Nilatin, well, before that, after the two were summoned back to Beijing, Emperor Qianlong sent the then only handsome 26-year-old Fu Hung to the front lines in the 10th month of 1748. 
He arrived in the 12th month of that year, and it took him less than three months to quash the Da Jinchuan Rebellion. I think it was a combination of Fu Hong's military prowess, and honestly, two years of fighting didn't help Sha Luobun, the greater Jinchuan chieftain, and his people. They were exhausted. Sha Luobun surrendered several times. Surprisingly, Fu Hong did not execute Sha Luobun. Emperor Qianlong even allowed him to stay as chieftain or Tu Si. This was a decisive victory for Fu Hong and Qianlong, but also laid the foundation for future rebellions, which is the second campaign that happens decades later. All right. The next big event that happens in this drama is, of course, the crowning of Xian Guifei as Empress. This is Na La Shi, or in this drama, we have Hui Fa Na La Shi crowned as Empress. We barely get to see anything in this drama, as it is just mentioned, but we do get to see Charmaine Shi in her formal court attire. So here is the timeline of events. Empress Fu Cha died in the fourth month of 1748, and I will say that in history, we would always refer to her as Xiao Xian Huanghou or Empress Xiao Xian. We wouldn't say Empress Fu Cha. Also, one of the reasons why we keep on saying like the fourth or seventh month is that even though it is clearly stated in Chinese, it's like April or July. But because they use the lunar calendar, we can't directly translate that into the Gregorian calendar. And so, for example, like the fourth month this year could mean like May or June,、um, or you know. Some other time frame in the Gregorian calendar, so it's just easier for us to translate the fourth or seventh month by、um, number rather than by the Gregorian calendar months. Yes, thanks for that. Now back to the timeline. In the seventh month of that year, Emperor Qianlong, citing an edict from the Empress Dowager, announces his intentions to crown Xian Guifei as the next empress. However, because the mourning period for the previous empress was twenty-seven months. He first promoted Xian Guifei to Huang Guifei, or the rank of Imperial Noble Consort, which is one step below the Empress. The ceremony was held in the fourth month in 1749. We skip this entire step in the drama. I know, you know, we need to go from Empress to Empress, but there is this whole two-year gap or between her actual crowning and there's a step of this promotion that happened in real life. It also makes it seem that the emperor totally forgot about the new empress or crowning of a new empress, but that is not the case. Literally, only three months after the empress Fu Cha died, he already announces, "Hey, we need somebody else to take over the reins in the imperial harem." The imperial edict that we overhear in the drama is actually the edict that promotes her from the imperial noble consort to empress. The drama does cut out the lines that mention her status as Huang Guifei. As Huang Guifei, she had several firsts. For example, she was the youngest Huang Guifei of Qianlong's life at the age of thirty-one or thirty-two. All of her ceremonial attire, allowances, and honors were equivalent to those of the empress. Prior to her, there was a huge difference between Huang Guifei and Huang Hou. I think maybe it's because everybody knew that she was going to be Huang Hou, so that's why they gave her all of these honors. 
Now, the imperial noble consort, or Huang Guifei, was finally crowned empress in 1750 on August 11th at the age of 32. Now, we do have, I'm putting August 11th because we know that's the actual Gregorian date <laughs> instead of, for example, the seventh month of that year. And finally, let's discuss the new empress's formal ceremonial attire. Unfortunately, we don't even get a full frontal shot of the outfit. All we see is the beautiful crown or chao guan and the back of the ceremonial outfit. As I mentioned earlier, my biggest recommendation is to go watch episode 47 of Ruyi's Love in the Palace for those full body shots. We also see here from the back that there are dragons on the robe, which do notate her new rank. For the ceremony attire, the Empress has a lot to wear. This includes the ceremonial crown, the jacket, the robe, the dress, jinyue, which is the item with all of the pearls dangling from the crown in the back, the lingyue, which is the non-pearl necklace or collar that the empress is wearing, earrings, ceremonial pearls, and the cai shui, which is this piece of silk that is in the front of the outfit. Unfortunately, we don't see it here in this shot. So the dress is put on first, and then the robe, and then the jacket. Or it's kind of hard to explain. Um, it's not a really, really great literal translation. So it's first the chao xun, and then the chao pao, and then wai jia the chao gua. The ceremonial dress is all neatly recorded in a collection that was compiled during the Qing Dynasty that records the formal dress, specifically during the Qianlong reign. For example, the ceremonial crown is made of mink or sable skin for the winter and wool for the summer. There's also long paragraphs on the number of pearls, the tassels, and the types of jewels that need to be added to the crown. So when we think of crown, it's not the same as, let's say, a tiara or a diadem, as we would think in Western cultures. The crown or the chao guan is, for example, that hat that the empress is wearing in her shot in this episode. The standards that were set during Qianlong's reign, which is in this era, were used all the way up until the end of the Qing Dynasty. The Qing Dynasty ceremonial attire is probably the most difficult and complicated out of all the dynasties. As we can see briefly in this episode, I mean, looking at what Charmaine's wearing, it's absolutely marvelous. We don't see as many uh, details for the other dynasties, but at the same time, this is also the closest that we have to our current present day. So we don't have, or we do have uh, items to compare to, and what we have for the Qing Dynasty is absolutely extravagant. And that is it for today's podcast episode. Thanks so much for listening, and please remember to vote on our website, ChasingDramas.com, as well as leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to. A friendly reminder that if you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and you are in the U.S., please feel free to head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That is J-U-B-A-O TV. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch on their platform. You can stream it through their website, Jumo, X-U-M-O, or else access it on TV if you have Xfinity or Cox Contour. They also have launched on Sling TV. Again, all of this is free and with English subtitles. Thanks again so much for listening, and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode. <laughs>